This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Dr. Richard Schwartz, otherwise known as Dick, is a family therapist and the developer of the Internal Family Systems Model, known as IFS. He's the founder of the IFS Institute and the author of the audiobook, Greater Than the Sum of Our Parts, which I cannot recommend enough, particularly for these times. Since I first learned about IFS, I've had many random encounters with people who have found this system to be life-changing. And if you've never heard of it, Dr. Schwartz breaks it all down in today's episode. In short, he explains that we're made up of many parts or sub-personalities that make up the self. He explains how trauma burdens these parts and how curiosity helps us heal them. We talk about the path to living our lives from our true self and what that looks like when we're self-led. We look at social activism through the lens of IFS. What are triggers in our culture? What are the shame cycles that often result from these triggers? How do we lead with confidence and curiosity? And how do we create true and sustainable healing? The pandemic sort of pulled the curtain back on this, what I call legacy burden of racism in our culture. And then the, the murders, the police murders, uh, ripped the curtain even further back. Let's get into it. And my normal speed will be very boring, so. No, I'm into it. It's funny, though, because I'm a big physical, and I, and I appreciate that the book is audio, and I need to go back and do all the, the meditations at normal speed. Mm-hmm. But I also am like, how is this not written down? I was, like, texting myself notes, and I want the physical copy of the, I want it to be a physical book, too. Well, funny you should say that because they had that idea and transcribed it. And I just finished a draft, which is 
a huge elaboration, but it was fun to write. Oh, I can't wait to read it. I was I was completely, completely blown away by it. And I've done a fair amount with maps and I've done MDMA assisted psychotherapy before. And so I've heard I've heard of IFS and then to actually sort of engage with it in that way. So directly, I was like, oh, my God, how are how is this not the thing? How are we not all (laughs) working in this system? Well, that calms me down to hear. (laughs) (laughs) No, I thought I know that you're a systems thinker and I know that you're a scientist and I feel like in in and we'll go into exactly what it is, what this what IFS is. But I was like, oh, holy shit. Like this makes so much sense in terms of our interior world and our outer world. And I felt like you had crystallized and expressed something that it's like we've all sort of been feeling around in the dark for. So I it was it was so exciting. I have to say, to listen to it. And so let's start at the beginning. So can you sort of take us through the idea of the multiple parts and the, or the multiple personalities, the, the, the way that we're constructed and in, in your view of, in your view of, of personality? My take is that we all have these, what other systems call subpersonalities, what I call parts mainly because that's what my clients were calling them when I first ran into this. And that, from my point of view, it's the nature of the mind to be subdivided that way, that actually one mind couldn't do everything we have to simultaneously. And so we have all these many minds that interact all the time. Actually, what we call thinking is a lot of their interaction, or they're just telling us what we should do, or reminding us of things to do. And, and I didn't believe any of this, you know, when I started out at all. But I ran into clients who started describing their parts to me and got really curious after I got over worrying that they were multiple personalities. And as a family therapist, that's my background, began to become, began, began to be intrigued by how those parts interacted inside and what kind of patterns they formed, and if all that was changeable. And so after almost four decades of, of investigating all this and experimenting, I can safely say that it's the nature of the mind to have parts, to be multiple that way, and that that's actually a very good thing, that there aren't any bad ones. I'm sort of the Will Rogers of the phenomena. I've never met a part that ultimately I didn't like. And I've worked with parts that have done heinous things in people's lives. And even those parts, when approached from what might be thought of as a mindful place of curiosity, will reveal the secret history of how they were forced into the roles they're in and hate what they have to do, but think they have to or else you're going to get hurt or or something terrible is going to happen. So as I was just... You know, I was lucky. I had a few clients early on who were very articulate about the phenomena and ultimately became clear to me that these parts are not what they seem and that actually they have lovely, valuable qualities and resources to lend to us and but are forced out of their naturally valuable states by trauma and by uh, what's called attachment injuries, which 
means bad parenting, basically. And <laughs> when that happens, they become what we'll call burdened with extreme beliefs and emotions. So when you experience a trauma, you take in the sense that you're the, at fault or that you're worthless, or you take in this terror about the world, or uh, you take in a kind of emotional pain that then enters these parts and drives them almost like a, a virus, pardon the expression these days. And that when they unload these burdens, when they release the burdens, they transform into their naturally valuable states, which is kind of seems miraculous, but actually works. So the, that's the basic, one of the basic premises is that we all have them. It's a good thing we have them, except that many of them are frozen in time during the trauma and think you're still five years old, think they still have to protect you the way they did back then and carry all these burdens. And, uh, and so then, in addition to that, I stumbled onto another discovery, which is actually even harder to believe and more important, really. And that is, as I was, as a family therapist, as I was trying to get these parts to talk to each other and improve their relationships with each other, I would find that as I would have two of them talk to each other, a third would interfere and, and make one of the others very extreme. And as a family therapist, we learned to set boundaries by asking family members that were doing that to step out of the line of vision and, and improve the boundary around the two that are talking. And as I was doing that and uh, getting a bunch of parts to step back inside, to relax, to open space, to let this conversation take place, it was like a, a totally different person would pop out and knew how to take over and knew how to relate to the parts in a way that was healing and had qualities like what we call the eight C's, curiosity, calm, confidence, compassion, clarity, creativity, courage, and connectedness. Uh, and the it seemed that that person would pop out. It was like the same person would pop up in all kinds of different clients and would relate in the same way, in a way that always led towards healing. Mm -hmm. And when I asked clients about that part, they'd say, you know, that's not a part like these others. That's myself. or my, That's more who I am. That's me. So I came to call that the self with a capital S. And now again, uh, almost 40 years later and thousands of clients later and thousands of people now using this all over the world, I can safely say that that self is in everybody, can't be damaged and knows how to heal and has those eight C word qualities. That's a big deal. That changes a lot of things about our understanding of human nature and how we can relate to each other. And also the finding that that self is just beneath the surface of these parts, such that when they open space, it pops out and mm. sort of starts to lead. So anyway, uh, I've rambled on. So No, I think it's so beautiful. I mean, this idea that we're sort of, that there's this complicated layer 
of these fragmented parts of ourselves, you know, from those small, you know, sometimes small traumas, right, of mm-hmm. sometimes massive traumas, but that they become hypervigilant and think that they're doing their job and in part because they don't trust the system that they're part of and that they can be reintegrated and then reapplied. And you call them, it's managers, firefighters, and exiles, right? And exiles are the the hardest, the most difficult to reach or the hardest to, to deal with. Is that correct? Yeah. And, and let me clarify, those labels really apply to the roles the parts are cast into, not their nature. Mm. Um, so just to describe it a little more clearly, so when you get hurt, and you're right, it doesn't have to be a capital T trauma. It can be some small incidental thing your parents said that didn't, and they didn't realize how much they were hurting you. But when that happens, there are parts of you that are young, what other systems call inner children, who are sensitive. And they're, when they're not hurt, they're full of joy and creativity and play, and they give us the awe we experience in the world. So when they're not hurt, we love being with them because they bring all those qualities to our lives. But when they feel hurt by something that happened, they now carry the burden of emotional pain or if they get scared of emotional terror or, uh, or a sense of, of worthlessness. Those are some of the common burdens that these parts take on. And after that happens, You don't want to be with them anymore because they have the power to make you feel that, what you felt in the moment, to make you feel that again. And uh, sometimes they have the power to actually take you out so you can't get out of bed for a week or, you know, it just depends on the level. And so because they scare us now and we don't realize there are these these great inner children that we're locking away, we tend to lock them up in inner basements or abysses or cysts so that they, so we don't have to deal with them anymore. And so for them, it's insult to injury. The injury was the trauma. And now the insult is we're abandoning them and and acting like we can't stand them. And so those we call exiles. Mm. young, vulnerable parts that get hurt or get scared or get shamed and by dint of that, get locked away. And when you get a bunch of exiles, you feel much more delicate and the world becomes much more dangerous. And so to deal, you have other parts who are forced out of their naturally valuable states into protective roles, some of whom are trying to manage your life so that, for example, no one gets close enough to hurt you again, or people you depend on don't get too distant, or manage your appearance so that you look perfect and don't get rejected, or manage your performance so you get a lot of accolades to counter the worthlessness. And so these we call managers, and they're, they're trying their best to keep us safe. Many of them are like over-promoted little kids, <laughs> <laughs> who, become, who become the inner critics. You know, the inner critics have a really bad name in our field. But 
I find over and over, they're just little, what we call in family therapy, parentified children. Mm-hmm. Who, because they're, they have such responsibility for keeping us safe, don't know what to do but to yell at you all the time and call you names. And often call you, use, use your parents' voice to do it. And then there are other managers who are trying to take care of everybody and never let you take care of yourself so people like you or and so on. There's a bunch of common manager roles, but they don't always work. And so the world has a way of breaking through those defenses and triggering your exiles, at which point it's like these flames of emotion are shooting out from the cyst and threaten to totally consume you. And so your system feels like that's a huge emergency. And to the rescue, there's another set of parts that come in, often in a very impulsive, reactive way to get you higher than the flames of emotion or distract you till they burn themselves out. So we call them firefighters. It's just another category of protector. We've all got those. We usually all have a hierarchy of them. So if the first one doesn't work, we go to the next one. If that doesn't work, we go to the next one just to get a little higher than the flames. Mm. And that's the map. It's pretty simple. When we work with somebody, we've learned the hard way to work with the protectors first, the managers or firefighters, and not go right to the exiles because those protectors have spent 30 years trying to keep you away from those exiles. So they're going to react if we go there right away. So we go to the protectors to get permission to go to the exiles. And then there's a whole process for healing the exiles, unburdening them, at which point the managers start to relax with the protectors. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So when you think about like what's happening at this moment in time, right, which is obviously a, a pandemic first and then this massive awakening around the systemic racism and and lack of equity in our culture and you see how there's so much pain, right? And is that and then and then people reflexively my my understanding of it is that people are acting out of those those exiles those deep wounds right exactly. deep, deep pain and then it triggers other people's exiles or managers who are then sort of shaming 
it seems like I'm watching what feels like the cyclical sort of like trigger cycle happening culturally. I love that you're bringing this up because it's an exact parallel to what happens in a lot of inner systems. Because you're right, the, the pandemic sort of pulled the curtain back on this what I call legacy burden of racism in our culture. And then the, the murders, the police murders, uh, ripped the curtain even further back. And so those, <laughs> the pain of the exiles in our culture that, that's due to that legacy burden is up now. It's really triggered. And, and people are reacting, many people from self, a lot of the protesters, just decide we've got to stand up for, for um stand up against this legacy burden and stand up for people who've been exiled. And it's triggering all kinds of firefighter reactions in our president and in in some other people in leadership. So it's it's an exact it's an exact parallel. How do we process that? I mean I know that that's it's it's individual, but how do we work with that pain? Does that make sense? Like yeah, how totally. do we yeah, how do we bring the self in? Yeah, so with an individual, what exiles need usually, because, you know, if I were working with you, Elise, and mm-hmm. had you focus on a little girl you might see inside who's stuck in some, in some dreadful scene, I would ask you how you feel toward her. And then depending on your answer, I would have you start to get to know her and ask her some questions. And I, you know, I would wait until your answer was, you know, I'm curious about her, or I even, I feel sorry for her, some version of that. Because then I would know you had enough self to make it safe to get to know her. Mm. And as you got to know her, you would learn something about why she's hurting so much. And you might even feel more compassion and you could show her that. And when she trusted all, trusted you and trusted that you cared about her and wanted to help her, I would have you ask her to really let you get what happened to her and how bad it was, where she's stuck back there, what happened in the past. And you would start to feel a lot of emotion, you might see scenes, you might feel various sensations as this exile was doing what we call witnessing. It was helping you witness what had happened and how bad it was. And when that's complete, that's a big step toward healing. And then, because these parts are frozen in time, I would say I want you to go to that little girl and be with her in the way she needed somebody at the time. And you'd say, okay, I'm there. And we'd have you do what the little girl wanted to have done back there for her. And then we would take her out to a safe, comfortable place. So the reason I say all that is because it's the same process. What do these exiles in our society want? They want to be witnessed. They want us to get how bad it's been for them for for 400 years. And they want us to update ourselves, get ourselves out of where we're stuck and help them out of where they're stuck in the past and begin to relate to them from self. Mm. Oh, it's really beautiful. And does this work, you know, I loved in 
in greater than the sum of the parts when you were talking about having gone to this in the evangelical community and how they just did not understand what you were talking about at all until they made this comparison. They were able to make the leap to how Jesus brought compassion to the exiles in the external world. And they were like, oh, and you're doing that inside of yourself. I don't know. Hopefully I didn't butcher that that story. But do we do all of these things simultaneously? Or is this something where we need to heal ourselves before we can go out and touch the world so that we are operating from self and not from our own exiles or letting our managers, you know, as a woman, I don't think I'm alone in this trying to be unassailable and trying to be perfect and just like, you know, just that something that's not achievable, obviously, but sort of like, that's a bad feeling, shut it down. That's a bad feeling, shut it down. So what's, what's, how does this thing, how does it all happen? Ideally heal ourselves and then society transforms not exactly because healing ourselves takes a, a lifetime a lot of the time. Yeah, but, there. <laughs> but getting started um, on inner healing really helps. And learning about self, learning about this essence that I call self as a place from which to lead in your activism. So I do a lot of work with social activists now. And many of them come to the activism because something terrible happened to them when they were young and they want to change that in the culture, which is admirable. But because of that, they lead from very righteous parts or very, very angry parts and, and it, it, it can polarize and it can backfire. So it's possible to help them go to those parts and heal those parts, at which point the protectors of those, which would be the angry, righteous ones, relax a bit and learn to trust their self to lead their activism. And mm. what they find and what I find is that self has, you know, it has nice qualities like compassion and calm and so on, but it also has three others, which would be courage, confidence, and clarity. And it has the clarity to see injustice and the courage to act to change it and confidence to stand up to people. And self can be very firm and forceful. It doesn't always have to be in that compassion place. And so as people get that, they, they do their, their uh, activism from this very different place and find it's, it's just more effective. So yeah. what I'm saying is it's both, you know, you go out into the world and then you get triggered and then you come back and you follow what that what we call that trailhead to find the part that got triggered and what it protects and then you work with that and then you go back out in the world and that's what i've done with clients for all these years is i'll work with a client and i'll get triggered and i'll i'll go between sessions and do my work on the trigger and come back and apologize to the client and it's made me a much better person for it. So that that's what being self-led looks like. The mm -hmm. you know when we're connected and and in compassion, it's that that ongoing work of understanding and 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 re I re not pr prioritizing, but like bringing your parts in and 
taking that that energy and sort of reapplying them, like giving them a different job. Yes, exactly. So we have three, four main goals now in IFS. The first is, I've already alluded to, which is the liberation of these parts from the roles they've been forced into so they can be who they're designed to be, which is always valuable. The second is what I'll call the restoration of trust in self-leadership that they lost at different points because of the traumas when you were a kid and you, you couldn't protect the system. So the parts had to step forward and do it for you. And then they lost trust in you. And then the third is the reharmonizing of this inner system. So the parts get to know each other and see they aren't what they thought and start to collaborate and work together. And then the fourth is to bring this self-leadership into the outer world in the way we, we were just talking about. So, mm-hmm. yeah, those are the goals. So I know that you've worked in, you worked with people who have been exiled, very exiled by society for, for terrible things that they've done, people who have murdered or harmed others. Can you talk a little bit about, about that experience? And, you know, the, the fact, obviously we have our DSM and we like to say that someone's a sociopath or a psychopath or, you know, multiple personality or whatever it might be. But can you talk a little bit about the way that, that you think about those people and sort of what, what might be happening internally? Yeah, glad you asked, Lisa. For seven years, I consulted to a sex offender treatment center that bought into IFS and, and, and everybody started doing it. And what we found over and over was the what was called the perpetrator part, the part that actually molested a kid or raped a woman. When we got to it, and you know, we had to get our parts to step back to get <laughs> at least mm-hmm. curious about it, it would a cross client often tell a similar story, which was when when that person was being abused as a boy, you know, self couldn't stop it. This part felt responsible to protect the system and stepped forward and said, who has power in this room? It's this guy that's doing this to me. I'm going to take his energy so I can protect the system from him. And so a lot of these parts wound up with the burden of the their perpetrator's energy and with along with that with the desire to hurt vulnerability a contempt for vulner, for their own vulnerability as well as a kid you know and would team up with the sexual part and form this kind of unholy alliance and have a lot of power in their system as a result And as we got that, and as we started healing the exiles that uh, were driving it and then helping unload the perpetrator energy, these guys transformed enormously. Mm, That's beautiful. I mean, I think, you know, I was talking about this with a friend and we were just, we were talking about sort of sex offenders and how clearly, you know, in, in, in recent past, it's become clear how much sort of sexual trauma has been inflicted on women, but that how deep this goes, right? This, how most likely there are far more pedophiles, for example, in our culture than we would ever know. And that our reaction is so 
understandably, but is so, as you said, you have to calm those parts in yourself before you can get curious. But yeah. there is such a shutdown. There's such an abhorrence. There's such a extreme rejection and lack of curiosity, really, because it's it's unbearable in a way to think about it, but that we're just we're just cutting it off, right? Like we're just letting it fester rather than trying to address it. And that by ignoring it, certainly it's not going away. And that not only is it not going away, but we have no real, we have no tools as a society for, and this is on us, on a, in ourselves. And then socially, like we have no tools for dealing with unbearable, unbearable pain or things that are unbearable to us, right? Except to shut it down. So how, how do, I mean, it's like, uh, how do we change that? Well, just to give you an example. So given what's happening now, I've become, I worked with my own parts that would make excuses for not being more active. And so I'm going to launch a program to try and do what we call mass unburdenings mm. with uh, racism that white people carry. And so how would that happen? One of the problems is that, you know, there's many, many valuable things about uh, the anti-racism movement and it's raised our consciousness enormously, but it also makes us want to exile the parts of us that carry that racist burden. And Mm -hmm. there aren't, you can't grow up in this country without having that. It's, it's it's impossible, really. So we all have a part that spouts that kind of stuff, and we are so ashamed of it that we we t- try to pretend we don't, and we try to lock it away. And I've done this in smaller groups already, but I'd love to do it with a large, large group where I'd have everybody go and find that part and get all the shame to step back and just get curious about it and learn about where it's stuck in the past and why it carries the stuff still and get it out of there and then send this this legacy burden of racism out of their system, all of which is possible. I've had really good luck with these small groups. So, and, and it's exactly the same as what you're talking about with pedophiles or other, you know, we, I have three daughters, so I, I really had to work to get my parts to step back. But you know, when you do, you learn that these parts are just stuck with this stuff. It's not, you don't want to make it like they have no accountability, but to have accountability, they really have to struggle because the stuff is just pumped into them and it's possible to pump it out. Mm-hmm. So, and, but it's not possible when, as you're saying, you come to them with that level of contempt because that just makes them exile it worse. And when you exile your racism, like us good liberals do, it becomes implicit racism. So it'll still have an influence and give you lots of blind spots. It's just you're not aware of it. Right. And your your protectors are in there writing checks and, you know, signing mm-hmm. petitions in a way that's, you know, gratifying to that part of you, but which is just a bypass exactly. around. Exactly. Yeah working with the exiled parts. And, you know, that's, that's what I'm observing right now. And I'm, I'm, 
have participated in as well is that that reflexive sort of like just make me feel better like what this will make me feel better and it's I don't shy away from the work but that's not doing the work so yeah I love the idea of it does it feels like we need culturally we need some major tools and I wish everyone could do MDMA because as you explain it's sort of it's this work in a session but until that can happen uh, your your meditations within the audiobook are a great place to start. I mean, just to, to have that, you know, s- could be a small breakthrough. There's just that moment where you're like, oh, right. Like, this is that part of me. That is exactly how I would describe it, too. This is that part of that hypervigilant part that flips, you know, whenever this happens or whenever this happens. But to, to just be able to create space between our self as you call it and those parts is so liberating yeah just that step by itself of oh i'm not dissociating it's a part that's taking me out i'm not horribly depressed it's a part that's very very sad and that gives you agency because you can separate from that part and then there is a you that's self that can actually comfort it if it's depressed or Remind the dissociating part, it doesn't have to take you out. You're not five years old anymore. or And so, yeah, it, just that much, knowing that these are not pathological processes, but instead are just the activity of protective parts, really frees people up a lot. So I know you get into this and, and you uh, sort of about the spiritual part of this. And what I thought was so stunning really was when you were talking about the this sort of stumbling onto the system or this this revelation that there is this system and this idea that as you said at the beginning that the self is you know totally intact and and is has all eight c's right the curiosity courage confidence connection clarity compassion and that it doesn't necessarily matter we're all equipped. We all have it. It's there. Circumstances. It's sort of like it's our genetic destiny in a way. And then the, the environment interacts with our with self to create all of these different parts, but that we have it. We have this blueprint. And for you, is that spiritual? Yeah. When I started out, it wasn't because I come from a very atheistic, scientific family. But as I ran into self, and ran into it in people who had no business having any of that, if you believed traditional developmental psychology, which says that to have any of these kinds of strengths inside, you had to have gotten it from an outside person through good parenting at a certain critical point in your life or through your therapist or something. And I was finding it in people who had been tortured on a daily basis. So I had to give up the that idea and then I couldn't really explain how this was possible until I ran into spirituality. And, you know, I had students who said, well, this sounds like Buddha nature, or this sounds like the soul, or it sounds like Atman, or... And as Mm -hmm. I looked into that, indeed, it seems that virtually every spiritual tradition has a word for it and describes it in a very similar way, which is ironic because so few psychotherapies know about it, that it just seemed like I was accessing that actually very quickly, much more quickly than a lot of the traditions would say you can, 
because I was finding you don't have to meditate 20 years to get there. You just need these parts to open space and boom, there it is. So yes, it's become a very uh, spiritual idea for me. I don't impose that on, on students who want to learn this, but that that's what it is for me. Yeah, no, it's true. It feels like, you know, when you find this in religions, they're all essentially saying this, the same thing, but that that's why I think it's such an exciting idea because it's so it it applies so universally. So what has and I I'm an, I'm new to this. So has IFS like does it evolve? Like are you continuing to sort of have breakthroughs and in, in in understanding it or advancing it or is it? Do you feel like it's it's quite complete as it is now? It's a kind of combination of those. So there are a lot of things that feel very solid, and yet I'm still running into nuances, way, both ways of understanding and ways of working with inner systems that I didn't know before. And that's part of what's kept me going for these four years. It's just a, a big, amazing adventure. And I'm so grateful to my clients because they're, they really taught it to me. And if I'm, you know, if I feel proud of anything, it's just that I ultimately became curious and and have remained curious about it all. Do you, I know that, so therapists become IFS therapists. And is this the sort of work that, that people would then engage with their therapists with all the time? Or do you do this in conjunction with sort of normal psychotherapy or... Is it something where you would go and do sort of like a week-long intensive part work to sort of then be able to do this work on your own? Or what's the best best application of it? You know, it, it's all of those are possible, but there are thousands now of IFS therapists who just do IFS and will work with clients for any period of time. It It happens to work more quickly than most other therapies, so... Sometimes it doesn't take nearly as long, partly because we don't fight with quote unquote resistance. Instead, we honor it and we ask for permission and we, we're just courteous. <laughs> we're, we're good, sensitive ecologists. We don't, you know, we, we know what we're doing in the inner world, so we don't get thrown out all the time. So anyway, yeah, it's possible to just do IFS. And there are people that combine it with other things. EMDR in particular, I would say. And yeah, people do retreats. I, I, Before the virus, I led retreats all the time. I'm not sure I'm going to go back to that lifestyle. I've kind of realized I, I like living at home. <laughs> <laughs> no. I like spending time with my wife. How about that? So. <laughs> I know. It's the, I think, the the everyone waking up in so many ways to how sustainable everything has been from sort of the the way that we run ourselves to our families to our planet you know it's just just mad i mean un, un incredible revelation around the all of the systemic issues of the way that we live and what a time to be alive i mean it's crazy yeah, I agree with the word wake-up call. I feel like, you know, the planet, this is a piece of feedback to us. If you keep growing this way and in making these incursions into 
untouched ecology, there's going to be more and more of these viruses and we're going to cut you back. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a, a healing time for the planet if we wake up and can change paradigms, change our value systems so that we aren't having to be dominated by the striving growth-oriented parts that have dominated most of the Western world and have gotten us into this place. So that, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to, to posit IFS as a shift in paradigm, a shift in our understanding of human nature that really can allow for a scaling back of all the things that have gotten us into this situation we're in. Yeah. And when you take IFS and you apply it sort of on a global or or planetary scale, does it still hold? And how would you how would you describe that in that construct if it does? Yeah, I mean you can you can look at how we have exiled lots of other inhabitants of this planet and how we're paying the price for that, wiping out species of all kinds and and releasing the burdens of viruses that, you know, infect us and will kill us off. So all that's parallel. And, you know, there are, there are manager and fire, fire fighter driven countries that you can't stop them from growing. That the main goal is this continued expansion and growth and, and become cancerous as a result. So, yeah, so there are ways to apply that framework to any level of human system, really. Yeah. So for people who are who are curious, would, what do you think is the best, like jump right into therapy or should they start with greater than the sum of your parts and, and do the meditations and, and listen to you walk them through the exercises? Is there sort of a good order in which to approach the work? That's a good place to start. There's a, a book called An Introduction to IFS that I wrote on our website. There's a book for couples called You're the One You've Been Waiting For. Hmm. Those are the, the, the things that people start with most of the time. And, you know, if you go to an IFS therapist, they'll explain things to you that won't just usually just drop you in. So that's another way to go. Yeah. I think feeling it is is really important because it's quite cool in concept. But then when you're actually, you know, and when you're actually able to to as insane as it sounds. But I've I've talked to the, the hurt little girl inside of me before when I've done MDMA psychotherapy. And it's like one of the most powerful experiences that I've had. And to be able to like hold her and comfort her and. Yeah. Um, see her, you know, like as something separate from myself to see that part of myself. Yeah. And that's, you know, that was very validating to me too, because um, the person, the people who are spearheading the MDMA and PTSD research, Michael Mithoffer and his wife, Annie, are well-trained IFS therapists. And they were wanting to make IFS the the protocol, but the FDA wouldn't go with that. So they just had a generic kind of be present with the person mindfully while they're experiencing the MDMA. But he kept track of how often it happened 
where people would spontaneously start, like you did, start working with their parts, not just little mm -hmm. girls, but also their protectors. And it, it was validating to me because it feels like I just stumbled onto something that people naturally know what to do when they access enough self. And the MDMA simply gets protectors to somehow disarm and relax very quickly. And suddenly your, your heart is totally open and you're just in this, uh, this energy of self. And then your parts feel like it's safe to show themselves and you start working with them. No, I totally, it's, it is, it is quite extraordinary. And the sort of where you're like, I'd like to live here, not, not on MDMA all the time, but in this <laughs> sort of expanded heart space of yeah. feeling so open and safe, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that's really, that's a lot of what we do with IFS is help your parts trust it's safe to let you live there. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. Richard Schwartz. To learn more about his work, head to ifs-institute.com. And I hope you'll listen to his audiobook, Greater Than the Sum of Our Parts. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.